0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 45, our review of the recent Paris Nash Conference, plus, from the vault, conversation from April 22, which looked at the need to improve testing criteria for drug development. These conversations are running a bit behind our usual schedule due to the challenges of travel and time change surrounding the NAFLD summit that ended in Dublin on Saturday. We'll be back on our regular conversation drop schedule next week. And now, on to the discussions. In this conversation, each panelist, Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, Jeff McIntyre of GLI, and I discuss one thing we each found particularly striking at the recent Paris Nash conference. Many of our comments were fairly similar and centered around three themes. One, a general appreciation of the quality and diversity of the talks at Paris Nash. Jeff McIntyre captured it best when he described Paris Nash as, and I quote, a pretty wonderful event. Two, Jorn used the phrase, quoting again, a little dissatisfying, to describe the regulatory response from Frank Anania of FDA on the question of moving beyond biopsy and changing the shape of drug approvals. In different words, each of us made a similar point. Three, I described the meeting as having what I called, and I quote, a dynamic tension between the forces pushing for rapid progress, providers, manufacturers, patients, versus the forces pumping the brakes, that is regulators and payers. Each of us described some element of that tension as carrying through the tone of the meeting. As the conversation ended, Jeff and I were agreeing that in the end, payers are likely to present the last and probably highest barrier to rapid progress on prescription medicines and testing. Every year, Paris and Nash provides some of the strongest Scientific content found in any program, coupled with an innovative look at fatty liver disease in the context of world health. This conversation touches on what emerged as some of the high points of the fascinating and important meeting. So, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. plan for this episode is really simple. Each of us is going to talk about one thing we found particularly striking. Then we're going to talk a little bit about global takeaways. And then we're going to go back through the agenda. Since two of our panels, Jeff and Jorn, had the opportunity slash privilege to be on panel for the last discussion, I think that probably forces you to think about what you found most striking in the meeting in some way, shape or form. So I'm going to invite one of you two to go first.
1: Yorin Schattenberg. I'll just say that Paris Nash is among my um, premier meetings. I've been visiting, I think this is the eighth, they said, and I've visited a lot of them, not all, and I think there was some breaks due to COVID, too. It has a certain magic to it being a think tank that addresses so many different topics. Some topics are really out of the box. I mean, we've seen a lot of topics that we heard before, so you might have wound up thinking that some sessions didn't bring you all the new information. On the other hand, if you're not deep into the field, I think most aspects that are moving the field now and critical to the field, you'll hear there eventually. It combines basic scientists, clinicians, mostly scientists and physicians. So very little allied health professionals, obviously, as we said, but it also has very prominent regulator appearance. And Jeff was there representing the patients. I think that was the only patient representative, really. The sessions where Frank Anania was invited, I, I realized that most of the discussion actually went toward him and it rephrases how the field is in need for guidance from regulators to find the right way forward and the dialogue with the regulators is needed. So bottom line, I think many different aspects. Currently, the regulatory questions, how do we go about moving beyond bio and conditional drug approval was for me a very dominant theme that came up in a number of sessions. I think a little dissatisfying answer, but maybe we'll get to that later on.
0: Well, I'm sure we will, because um, that was where I was going to start. Also, go ahead, Jeff. Jeff McIntyre.
2: Yeah, I think I would only say what Jorn said in different words. I mean, my takeaway from it is that it is a pretty wonderful event. It was fascinating to see, to me, the combination of Arun Sanyal coming from the United States and putting it together with his French colleagues. And so there's this interesting blend of, of like American and European perspectives that would sometime clash, that would sometimes defer, that would sometimes agree and kind of see where that ended up at. And as Jordan mentioned, one of those points was when Frank Anania from the FDA, when the regulators came in and to me took a little bit more of a harder line than I was expecting in terms of clinical trials and the use of biopsy, you know, specifically talking, I think the phrase he used was real world outcomes often in that. It was an interesting interesting conversation. I think um, as I remarked in the last panel, maybe it's Paris, maybe it's the first time back, but there was just a little more general sense of optimism, or at least there was that lack of sense of doom, if you will, or despair, because we do have a couple of drugs in the pipeline right now that look like they could be poised. They've got good chances for approval, it looks like, and it's not the panacea that I think a lot of people have been talking about. But there is that kind of sense of optimism, and I think that probably flowed over into the conversation about a lot of the excitement around non-invasives and then to have the regulators come in and basically put a body check onto that was pretty enlightening. And so it was interesting to see kind of the variety of reactions to that across both researchers and industry and even within industry, phase three versus phase two folks, as well as kind of the whole diagnostic sector also. Really, really interesting conversations.
0: Louise, you're next.
3: Louise Campbell. The one thing that I was surprised at, there was a round table, an industry round table. There was Madrigal with Rebecca Tobe. There was Novo Nordisk, and I don't know the chap's name. There was also Intercept and another company, uh, Inc. or something like that. There was a discussion amongst them about the hard endpoints for currently the FDA and what industry and the trials are centred on. And it was Novo Nordisk that raised the point that if all of your... You collect an awful lot of information in the trials. If your information and your other results support your biopsy and you have overwhelming Data, maybe it was time to take this evidence to the FDA to say everything is correlating and to ask the question we all now have this strength of data. Can we look at changing the endpoints? And I know Frank was harder than you probably expected him to be, but maybe we're just getting ahead of ourselves. He was particularly keen on combination therapies of drugs that have actually independently haven't been proven to be effective yet. He was stressing that point, which arguably is correct for the mechanisms, but he was particularly on. the safety side. That surprised me. There is a wealth of data in the clinical trials, and Rebecca Torb was also right. They only want to hear what we have, and that is the main outcomes that we have to prove. But also, deep diving in that data may produce the evidence that we want. We've discussed it here multiple times, so maybe it's time we nail NIT and places like that. So I thought that was an interesting discussion, and I wasn't expecting it from industry. That's
0: interesting. One of my general takeaways from the meeting, besides the fact that I could probably listen to Scott Friedman read a phone book and learn from what a good job he does of presenting things and how much knowledge he brings to it, was you feel this dynamic tension between the scientific and patient advocate side of the slate on the one hand and the regulatory and payer side of the street on the other. One of the places it comes up as we're describing now is on biopsy. I think the same dynamic you're seeing on biopsy is a dynamic that you're going to see on reimbursement where science says this is all non-communicable metabolic disease. The liver lies at the base of a lot of that. And even if we can't prove exactly what the liver is doing. We can prove it out in terms of a whole bunch of outcomes on other diseases. And you can see the regulators and the payers both coming back and saying, but I've got drugs that treat each of those other outcomes. What are you giving me? I don't have already. Without taking a look at underlying mechanisms or dynamics, because that's really not what they see themselves as being here to do. Since I believe FDA person, I guess Joe Turner um, and Frank, opened the gate at NASHTAG wider than people expected, folks have been running through the width of the aperture they thought they had. And I think Frank kind of narrowed that but by the way, if you think that was narrowing, stay tuned for what payers are capable of. So I think one of the things this podcast is going to start spending more time on is how to create a common dynamic there. And Jeff will actually want to work with you guys on that because I know that's our real Global Liver Institute mission as well.
2: It is. it's is interesting to hear you kind of say it with that chronology, if you will, because I think we're eager to point to Turner coming in to NASTAG from off of the GLI's externally led patient-focused drug development meeting that we had for them, where, non-invasives and kind of the pushback against biopsy or or kind of this antiquated biopsy that we have now was a real through line in that meeting. I mean, I think and through no design of our own, we just let the patient speak, but we've had the confirmation at NASHTAG and in a separate meeting with Turner as well that he was really kind of began to hear that. We've mentioned at Paris Nash also that the distinction between pushing only for NASH resolution and not just stopping NASH progression was something that kind of figured into that a little bit as well. And if you rely on biopsy every time just to kind of pull back NASH progression and maintain, if you will, that just can't be scaled. And so it's interesting to see Frank and Ania come in and, as you say, narrow the aperture a little bit more so. And I think that's justifiable where we are right now. But as we mentioned, data will lead the way, but it's going to be the patient storylines that are going to provide a lot of the energy to be able to eventually make this
0: change over. You know, Jeff, I agree with that. Everything I know from what I did in the industry before I started doing this podcast says that energy is more likely to revolve around payers than it is around regulators. That even if regulators require biopsy for approvals, if payers then do not require biopsy for reimbursement, which sounds like a virtually insurmountable wall given how many people are going to need the drugs, then in fact that will be a hiccup and it will slow us up a little bit. But once drugs are available, will not meaningfully change the scope of progress, maybe just slow the pace up a bit. If payers believe that they're going to require biopsy and are only going to look for Russian, then that will have a mammoth impact on what happens.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. This has got to be a two-part strategy and I think that particularly points to the power of the patient in this and not just the power of the patient voice, but the power of a well-organized patient voice, being able to go forward and partner with both industry to be able to partner with our academics and the KOLs, um, to partner with everybody on this because otherwise it comes across as this kind of, I don't want to say self-centered necessarily, but it comes across with a much more self-interest on this. But if we as patients can be supported by the industry in order to be able to have those sort of conversations with the payers while we're going through these other processes with the regulators, then I think
0: that that will set us up for more success down the road. With apologies to Jordan and Louise, one more US-centric comment, which is, and I don't know how this plays outside the US, but in the past, people have had success looking to employers as a source for good leverage. If you talk about the bad outcomes that are likely to that are associated with liver disease, a lot of those have to do with work time lost quality of employment, presenteeism, stuff like that, that employers understand. And payers are less likely to respond to industry or, frankly, even to patients than they are to employers or to patients when patients come through the gateway of employers. So I think in the States, at least, and you're, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how this is going to play outside the States. But in the States, Jeff, I think employers are going to be a key element in this debate as it emerges, not at the regulatory level, certainly, but at the, what happens when patients actually get treated level.
3: I think you're right that maybe this is an area for ease the International Liver Federation and to start to get into the work environment the EASL Lancet report last year did prove that liver disease in all its guises is second leading cause of working lives lost that is an employing problem yet I don't know any health and lifestyle and wellness in an employment occupational health including health service that look at people's liver health or assess them they might do an audit score but you're not going to show it you might do these things we know that 42% of nurses are overweight. We're not great health models in some respect. So we can't get away from those figures. But Fares and And in session one brought in a new dynamic that we're all trying to get NASH resolution and the context of how about opening it up to cardiometabolic outcomes as well as NAFLD and NASH outcomes. Because most people with NASH and NAFLD die of cardiovascular disease. So if the outcome of your drug is to stabilize, NAFLD not resolve NASH or NAFLD but to help cardiometabolic health and survival then you have an outcome that's measurable and that might get approval so that opens the door and he was very much on that multi-morbidity pathway and our organ-centric silos stopped the use of good drugs that have already been approved to be tried elsewhere so it did open up more of those discussions for that that we maybe got the wrong endpoint. Just before I had at my soapbox on that Arun Sanyal was very good when he started his session The Patient Pathway that whilst we listen to these meetings and we slap ourselves on the back and we talk a good game 80 to 85% of people with cirrhosis and end-stage liver disease and 55% in the United Kingdom I'm sure Jean will tell you what Germany's are and several other countries get diagnosed too late that is a failure as he stated of healthcare so the FDA unless we change this Leaves Naffald and Nash, which is the biggest global disease that nobody's ever heard of, with no treatment options, even minor ones, and we continue to see a failure in healthcare because liver cancer and cirrhosis, as was shown in some of the data from the U.S., Vermaal Mishra is frightening, and they have no outcomes at the moment or options.
1: And then now between Jeff and Louise, and the points you raised, Roger, I think it revisits why Paris Nash is a unique meeting because there's so many aspects of the disease. We had the regulators, we had the card- cardiologist, and I heard him actually pushing us for endpoints. And this is something Frank Anania mentioned also. So we can learn from other disciplines here. I heard a lot of times that we don't have the surrogate that would substitute for an endpoint to approve a drug quite yet. Even the cardiologist said, you know, we've been looking at LDL or HDL for too long. We really were mandated and happily we did cardiovascular outcome trials, which is of course quite a burden for patients and developers. I have to say at a lot of points in the meeting, I heard we need more data or strong data to link an NIT to an outcome in, in order to substitute for biopsy when we're talking about conditional approval, right? So approval of a drug before an endpoint has been shown. And I mean, that's why we always revisit the bias theme. And I think it came up to uh, in many of these talks over and over again, and the field needs to move forward. I think Nail NIT, as Louise mentioned, could be one initiative because it's a prospective biomarker study where endpoints will be emerging, but also some of the trials that enroll in compensated cirrhosis patients. And Louise rightfully said there are many patients undiagnosed we got to get them in trials and monitor for outcomes and link the right markers uh, to be able to predict those outcomes. Uh, I guess that was my look at it again. And apologies for not quite answering your question, Roger. It's just the multifaceted aspects of this meeting that keeps my ideas bouncing between sessions.
0: So good. So now let me ask my question again. How do you think all this plays out in Germany? How much pressure will there be to move to a more metabolic perspective? Where do you think it will come from between regulators, patients, payers, employers, politicians, whomever?
1: So that all depends on EMA. So if EMA approves the drugs. In Germany, the question is, what are we going to pay for this as a universal healthcare system? We're not going to pay for the change of a marker, at least not the price that they are asking for. And here, I think, the single most important point that has been accepted as relevant outcome to patients is quality of life. If you're not showing that somebody survives longer, then quality of life becomes incredibly important. And I think patient-reported outcomes will be crucial here. And Jeff mentioned one or two aspects, how patients and advocates need to be included multiple steps on the way and I think that I can just echo that. It's the only way that we're going to get a drug approved based on surrogates that are not been shown to predict outcome yet with the support of the patient. This might be something in Germany that will be considered in particular if you shouldn't show that the patient's quality of life improves through this. Beyond other things I'm not convinced that there's going to be a lot of money paid for these drugs and, and that could mean that maybe they don't get to the market. I mean we have the same problems as through the EU the patients are there. It's just the, the approval of the drug by the regulators doesn't mean that it's marketed in Germany and paid uh,
0: for. Interestingly enough, two digressions. but well, one digression, one comment from the podcast. Over and over again, I keep thinking back to, and Jeff, you might have heard this or you might have been traveling because it's our most recent episode, um, or two episodes ago, uh, the episode where we talked about combination therapy with uh, Mazen and Naeem, and the discussion about the Legend trial and should uh, the combination for line of Fibonor have been a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2. I, I just hear that, all the implications of that question rolling back over and over again, including in this discussion, right, where the question... If you were taking a purely hepatology point of view, you would know that GLP-1s are demonstrated to have an effect on liver fat. You would know that the big issue with Lanny perceived is weight gain, and therefore GLP-1 is the way to go. If you took a more overall metabolic approach, you would say, well, SGLT-2s drop as much weight or more what you'll gain from Lanny. So you start out where you were and you've got much better cardio, proven cardiorenal effects. So th- that's number one. And I, I think that the debate over how to think about that is a pivot point. A pivot point, by the way, I think uh, Frank Ganania kind of pushed to the side in terms of what we are and what we aren't willing to think about yet. But a serious pivot point in thinking about how the science is going to evolve and how treatment is going to evolve, number one. Number two, in our last Rising Tide, which is the diabetes series, which was about use of drugs, one of the comments was about wanting to use Wagovi, which is the 2.4 milligram dose of SEMA for obesity, but never getting it approved. And another panelist saying, well, you might just have to think about giving Ozempic, which is the oral, and you won't get as much weight loss, but it's easier to get the drug approved. So I don't know where those those compromises are going to play out country by country. And I don't know how much impact that has on what you were trying to do in the first place. So how much are you willing to give up to get an easier approval, but maybe not achieve what you wanted to? That may be a peculiarly American question
1: again. And now back to Roger.
0: We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss some recent exciting drug trial results and what they pretend for the next couple of years in drug development. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.